Good evening, everybody. Welcome to uh, the Men's Midweek for the Hartford Church of Christ. Today is Tuesday, the 17th. Uh, glad everybody could join. Hope everybody's staying safe, uh, feeling faithful during the crazy times that we're going through. My name is Will Walter, and I'm here in uh, Julius's amazing studio. Uh, big shout out to Julius. Thank you very much for live streaming this. So we're going to be talking tonight about a topic that is uh, one I think is incredibly faith-building, one that is very exciting, and that topic is the canonization of the Bible. And the purpose of tonight is to help us understand how it is that the Bible was formed. Uh, it's just so clear that God was the one that formed the Bible. It wasn't written by any one man or any group of men uh, who conspired. It's clear that God put it together and that it's very clear that God has given us exactly what we need. Um, so when we talk about the word canon, what does that mean? The word canon means a measuring stick. It's something that we live by. It's a ruler of sorts. Now, I'm an engineer and I use um, rulers all day long and I use scales and these things are meant to be exact measurements. So when you're working on your plans, you have, you know exactly what you're working with. And really when we talk about the canonization of the Bible, that's what we're talking about. So the Bible, the Old Testament is comprised of 39 books written over a period of about a thousand years from 1500 BC to about 450 BC. And the New Testament is 27 books written from about 45 AD to 95 AD. So 66 books make up the Bible. And so the main points that we're going to be talking about tonight, um, was Jesus a real man? The entirety of the Bible, the Old Testament points to Christ. There's prophecies about Christ. There's types of Christ, like Moses and David were a foreshadowing of Christ. And there's even examples of Christ showing up in the Old Testament. In fact, many scholars believe when the Old Testament talks about the angel of the Lord, that that was actually Jesus. As an example, the angel of the Lord spoke to Balaam's donkey. At one point, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, and a fourth man who appeared like the son of the gods was with them in the fire. That was Jesus. The entirety of the Old Testament points to Jesus, and the entirety of the New Testament is about Jesus' life, his teachings, and then the teachings that were carried on by the apostles. So the starting point is really coming to an understanding that Jesus was a real man. He really existed. He really taught. He really spoke. He really did miracles. He really died and was raised on the third day. We're going to use logic to, um, to explore that and come to an understanding that Jesus was a real man, a historical man. And then we're going to talk about the Old Testament and how that was really formed mainly from God speaking to the prophets, and they wrote down God's Word. It was immediately accepted as God's Word and became Scripture. Then we're going to talk about the New Testament, formed a little bit differently from the Old Testament. The Old Testament, God spoke to the prophets, in the New Testament, God spoke through the apostles. Um, so it's a little bit different 
method that God used to bring the New Testament together. And we're going to talk about that and explore that. And then finally, we're going to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls. And for those of you who have never um, studied the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, if you're anything like me, I love history, uh, love the Bible. The Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, are. I think you're going to be amazed when we talk about what they mean to biblical history and the integrity um, and the authenticity of the scriptures. So let's dive right in. So the first thing we're going to talk about is this guy Jesus. Was he real? And we're going to use logic. And I think it's very, very important for us to use logic. I think for people like me, naturally I am faith challenged. Um, I'm a scientist, I'm an engineer. I use logic, I think, uh, with deductive reasoning. And this type of thinking about Jesus in the scriptures using logic really helps me, and I hope that it'll help you as well. So we're talking about Jesus. In John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way. He said, he's the only way to the Father. He's the truth, he's the life, he's the only way to the Father. It's a very bold statement to make. So was Jesus real? That's what we're going to look at. He was either a legend or he was real. Now, there are many extra-biblical manuscripts that reference Jesus as a leader of the Jews, Christians, and Gentiles, condemned, crucified, and raised. And I'm going to read, I'm going to read a quote from a guy named Josephus who was who is widely recognized as the authority on the history of the Jews. And this quote was from approximately 93 AD in the book that Josephus wrote called Antiquity of the Jews. And it says this, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles, he was the Christ, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. The next thing I want to read was written by a Roman senator named Cornelius Tacitus from about 116 AD, and this is what he wrote. Therefore, to scotch the rumor that Nero had burned Rome, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinement of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. Another guy, Lucian, who was a, a Lucian of Samosata, a Greek satir, satir, satirist, sorry, wrote in 170 A.D., The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day. The distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. And then finally, I want to read something written by a guy by the name of Mara Bar Serapian, who was a Syrian philosopher who wrote this in 70 A.D., what advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? And there's many, many more extra-biblical references. But these are amazing that 
the men who wrote the things that I just read, they weren't Christians. They were not sympathetic to the Christian cause. They had no reason to write those things other than they wanted to write about history and what had really happened. And it's very clear, looking through the extra biblical manuscripts, I mean, we, our calendar is obviously after Christ, right? The thought that to deny Jesus as a historical figure is an extremely fringe idea. Additionally, there's mountainous evidence that Christians were brutally persecuted and willing to die in the first century for a man who lived just 25 to 50 years before that. Okay, so we've established that Jesus was a historical figure. He claimed to be the Son of God. He really walked the earth. He taught. He performed miracles. People followed him. He was crucified and he raised on the third day. So he was a real man. Next question is, was he a liar? Is what he said, was he intentionally lying or was he telling the truth? So in John 18, verses 28 to 38, that's when uh, a few days before or the day before Jesus is crucified, he's brought before Pilate and Pilate questioned him. Now remember, Pilate did not want to crucify Jesus. The Jewish mob, um, the Jewish mob was the one that wanted to crucify Jesus. And Pilate was trying to give Jesus an out. And basically he was questioning him. And he said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, I'm the king of the Jews. And if you think about it, if Jesus knew he was lying, if, if this was a ruse, if this was a hoax, here you are before Pilate and you're, you're given an out. If Jesus was a liar, he would have said, okay, gigs up, you got me. I was only kidding, but he didn't do that. He, he obviously didn't do that. Jesus was not a liar. So Jesus was real. Jesus didn't intentionally lie. The next question is, was he a lunatic? Maybe he thought he was the Christ. Maybe he thought he was the son of God, but he was a lunatic. Well, for those of us who have made Jesus Lord, who have been trying to live by the scriptures, we know that Jesus' teachings on adultery, divorce, oaths, forgiveness, how to act at work, how to, you know, how to be a husband, how to be a wife, how to raise kids, how to forgive people, how to be a leader, how to be a follower. We know that these teachings have has transformed our hearts, our minds, our souls for the much, much better. These are clearly not the teachings of a lunatic. We know that there are religious lunatics. Jim Jones is the one that comes to mind. Uh, you may remember back in the 70s, I believe, um, he, he couldn't practice anymore in the United States. He had about a thousand people that followed him down to Guyana, and he basically gave them all poison Kool-Aid. That is a religious lunatic. Jesus clearly was not a religious lunatic. So then, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He was a real person. He wasn't lying. He wasn't a lunatic. The only thing that we have left to believe is that he was and he is who he claimed to be. And that's the Son of God. That's the, the way to God, the only way to God. And that's our Lord. But the caveat with that is it's only if we choose to make him Lord because he gives us that option. We don't have to make him Lord. So Jesus was a real man. So everything about the Bible is centered around Jesus. 
So let's talk about the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written by the prophets. The Old Testament, um, the fingerprint of God is all throughout the Old Testament. As I said, not only everything points to Christ, but in everything that came true hundreds of years later. And there are many, many messianic prophecies, which are prophecies about Jesus, and these are amazing. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Uh, he would die on a cross. He would be pierced, sold by a good friend for 30 pieces of silver. There's hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about Jesus, but I don't even want to focus on those. I want to focus on, real quickly, three prophecies that were written about actual historic events that really happened hundreds of years after they were prophesied. So real quickly, Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12 is Jeremiah the prophet. He's prophesying to uh, the Israelites and he's warning them about their sin and their backsliding. And he's saying, since you guys aren't going to repent, you're going to have to go in captivity. You're going to be captured and deported to Babylon where you're going to live for 70 years. Specifically says 70 years. This was written in about 650 BC, and about 45 years later, the Jews were in fact um, captured. The, their nation was ransacked. They were deported to Babylon in about 605 BC, and then they stayed there for almost exactly 70 years. And in 535, they were able to go. There was a new king, and he allowed them to go back to Israel. It's amazing. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 specifically talk about the four kingdoms that would succeed each other. And, and he's talking about the known world back then, the kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. So the four kingdoms that would, would rule for hundreds and hundreds of years after the prophecy. And sure enough, history has shown that that's exactly what happened. And then Daniel 11, I think, is one that, that people are probably the least familiar with out of the ones I'm reading here. But in my, in my mind, the, the most amazing one, and if you're a history buff again like me, um, you love this kind of thing. So Alexander the Great, around 330 B.C., obviously a historical figure. He became the ruler of Greece when he was in his early 20s. He took over from his father, uh, Philip, I believe. And he was a warrior. He was fearless. Um, he basically conquered the known world in about 10 to 15 years. And then at an age 33 or 34, he died suddenly, and his kingdom was split up amongst his four generals, known as the Ptolemies. And for the next two or three hundred years, they ruled. Now, there was all sorts of uh, alliances that they made with one another, and one would have their son marry someone else's daughter. There was wars, there was infighting, there was backstabbing. All these crazy historical events that happened. And the amazing thing, if you go through Daniel 11, and, you, and if you have a history book at the same time, you will see that all these very specific events that happened over the next couple hundred years, between about 330 and let's call it 150 BC, actually happened and actually were prophesied in the book of Daniel in about 580 BC. Absolutely amazing. So the process of formation of the Old Testament, it was organic. No one man, no council of men conspired to 
form the Bible. It was clearly formed by God. And, and it's so important to realize that because when you look at the scriptures, when you look at the entirety of the Bible, it's written over uh, 1,500 years, 66 different books, 40-something uh, authors. There's no way that one man could have written it. It's, it's linked together like a million-piece jigsaw puzzle that just fits perfectly, references each other, everything agrees with each other, the prophecies, um, everything goes together. But the fact that it couldn't have been written by one person, that would be impossible, but the fact written over 1,500 years by 40-something men. But the Old Testament was formed very organically. The first five books, uh, known as the Pentateuch, were written by Moses in around 1500 B.C., and immediately placed in the tabernacle. And what would happen in the Old Testament is that a prophet whom God spoke to directly, a prophet whom all of Israel clearly recognized as a prophet of God, would write a book. God would speak to him. He would write the things down, some of his own words, some of his own warnings, uh, some history in there, obviously. He would write it down, and it would immediately be recognized as Scripture. So, Moses writes the first five books of the Old Testament, and now the canon is five books. And then Moses dies. Joshua succeeds Moses. He leads him in the Promised Land. He writes the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is immediately placed in the tabernacle. It's immediately recognized as Scripture. And now, in the canon... There's six books. And these, these prophets were clearly recognized by, God, uh, by the people, as I said. Moses performed miracles in Egypt, uh, the plagues. He led them through the Red Sea. The Red Sea swallowed up the Egyptians. He did miracles in the desert. He went up to the mountain. Uh, everybody saw him go to the mountain. The mountain shook. They were all terrified. Uh, after Moses died, Joshua led them uh, victory after victory. It's very clear that these men were prophets and recognized as prophets. And that's why when the books were written, they were recognized as being from God and they were immediately placed in the tabernacle. A couple scriptures, Joshua 24, verse 26. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. And in 1 Samuel 10, verse 25, he wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Now, many of the Old Testament books reference other Old Testament books as Scripture. So the Old Testament canon started out with five books and incrementally increased to 39 books. So a couple principles of Old Testament book of adoption. So I'm going to read Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 3. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. So Deuteronomy was one of the first five books, so God laid this out in the very beginning so people would understand. And a lot of these prophecies had short-term meanings, and in the same breath, they had long-term meanings. The short-term meanings might happen 10 years down the road, 50 years down the road, and the longer-term meanings, the messianic meanings, happened 1,000, 1,500 years later. And basically, God is saying, look, if the, if the prophecy comes true, that's one way you know that is real. And then Deuteronomy 13, I'm sorry, it's, it's not the same one there, but, but essentially he's saying that there's a scripture there that says that prophecy can't contradict a previous prophecy. So 
There's prophecies in the beginning, in the beginning books, and God recognized that there was going to be false prophets. Similar to there being, there's been false prophets through the ages, and there's false prophets, there's religious nuts, like Jim Jones. We know there's false prophets, and so God is laying it out that if somebody prophesies something, but it goes against a previous prophecy that has been recognized as Scripture, then that is not from God. So one thing I, w I do want to talk about that is, is amazing is the Jewish dedication to the scriptures. So the, the Jews um, wandered in the desert for many years, as we know. Um, and then they came in the promised land and they were there. And, and, and then um, the temple was built by Solomon in around 950 BC. And the temple immediately became the center of Jewish life. Uh, that's where they would go. That's where the scriptures were stored. And that is that really defined the center of Jewish life was the temple. Now, in 605 BC, as we previously talked about, the Jews, because of their sin, because they're backsliding, because of their worship of false gods, uh, God allowed the Assyrians and the Babylonians to come in and ransack them and deport them and carry them into captivity. And when they went to captivity... Uh, they no longer had the temple to be the center of their, their worship, the center of their life. And it's really in those 70 years that that's where the Bible really became the center of their, of their uh, the religious life. Interestingly enough, I read a book that says something to the effect of that the Jews learned to become Jews during the captivity. And when we think of the Jewish people today, we're th we think of people who are very devoted to the scriptures. There's no doubt about that. And it's just interesting that during that time period, it's when they really coalesced around the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, um, the Jewish scriptures. And I read something else that's very interesting, something to the effect of um, that after a nation of people throughout all history, when they are uh, conquered and they are deported and their nation is extinguished, that no longer, it has never taken longer than four generations for that nation of people to lose their identity and to lose their common language. But it's amazing that the, the Jewish nation in AD 70 is when uh, Rome came in and basically um, extinguished, when they ransacked the temple, they extinguished the Jewish nation. And the, the Jewish nation stayed that way for almost 2,000 years until 1949. And yet, through all that time, they maintained, even though they didn't have a nation, they maintained their, physical, their identity, and they maintained their language. And it's because of the written word, because of the written scriptures. And I think that speaks to the power of the written word, of specifically God's written word. It's pretty cool. So then we see um, the last prophet, the last book was written uh, 450 or 400 B.C., and that was the book of Malachi. And then God's prophetic word went silent for almost 400 years. Not to say God wasn't working, and we know there were prophets. We know there were prophets waiting for Jesus. But the written word uh, went silent for about 400 or 450 years. And you go, man, that seems weird. That seems odd. Why would God go silent for four or 450 years? And so we think about it logically. If we had the Bible, we had the Old Testament, and we had prophecies that were carbon dated or they were um, dated by extra biblical manuscripts to 
let's say, 3, AD, 3 BC. And they said, there's going to be this guy, Jesus. He's going to lead uh, this group of Christians. He's going to do all these wonderful things. And here we are 2,000 later, and we go, okay. A prophecy that was written 2,000 years ago, but it talked about something that would happen three years after it was spoken. It would be very hard for us to believe that or verify that. But the fact that these prophecies were written 1,500 to 400 years before Jesus, and there's no doubt and there's no question that these books were written 1,500 to 400 years before Jesus. And then along comes Jesus, and we have all these extra biblical references that, yes, this is who Jesus was. This is what he did. It just makes it, um, it's amazing. And I think that's one of the reasons why God's prophetic word went silent for four or 450 years. Jesus quoted the Old Testament at least 250 times. In fact, he quoted all the books except Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Uh, Luke 24 and verse 44, Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And when that, that phrase, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, that was a phrase that was widely recognized by all the Jews at that time, that encompassed the entirety of the Old Testament, the 39 books as we know them right now. And so Jesus quoting the Old Testament many, many times, but right here he's essentially quoting what all the Jews recognize as the entirety of the 39 books. And he's quoting them as scripture, which is amazing. The New Testament writers often refer to Old Testament books as scripture. Uh, let's look in Romans 1 and verse 2. This is Paul, and he says, The gospel he promised, he being God, obviously, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's amazing because he's, he's referring to the Old Testament as the Holy Scriptures, but he's also saying the Old Testament was promising the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, in, in uh, chapters 3 and 4, it says, For Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And remember, when Paul is writing this, some of the New Testament books were known as Scripture, but he's really talking about the Old Testament when he talks about the Scriptures. There's also scriptural references to the different covenants. And I have one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. And when we talk about covenants... The Old Testament is God's written word uh, through the prophets, the first 39 books. But really that is describes the Old Covenant, which is God's promise in his relationship with the people as described in the Old Testament. The New Covenant is, um, well, the New Testament we know is the 29 books, but the New Covenant is the promise and the new relationship that God would have with the people that's described in the New Testament. And, and there's the differences between the, the covenants. The Old Covenant was a new nation, lots of rules. There was a priestly system. You had to go through a priest to get to God, to get your sins forgiven, to have that relationship with God. And there was lots of rules and lots of regulations. Do this, don't do that. And there were very specific reasons why those rules were in place. God was helping a new nation, a baby nation, to learn how to be a nation. But the New Covenant is really a new relationship 
that we get to have with God. We get to go straight to God because that priest Jesus allows us to do that. And instead of all the rules and regulations, the new covenant describes that because of the relationship that I have with God, that we have with God, we will want to abide by those principles and those rules and regulations. But in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, uh, is an absolutely amazing scripture. I encourage you to go back and read it. Uh, basically, God is talking to Jeremiah and he says, this is the covenant I will make. And he goes on to describe about how it would be more of um, a relationship-based than rule-based. And then in 2 Corinthians uh, 3, verse 6, Paul is talking about how we, each of us who are Christians, are competent as ministers of a new covenant. So let's talk about the New Testament for a bit. So the New Testament was written by the apostles. As I had mentioned before, it was really written more through the apostles than to the apostles. And off the top of my head, I know God spoke directly to Saul when Saul was being converted, and and, uh, and he warned him um, as as Saul was you know going around killing Christians. And then I know that um, God also spoke to Peter in dreams. Uh, in at least one dream, but I don't know that there's a lot of references where God is speaking directly to the apostles. He's speaking through the apostles. So, so what would happen is um, Peter, Paul, James, they would write letters to the churches, uh, to a specific church, and giving them instruction Uh, on how to live, on how to resolve conflict. They knew some of the issues that the churches were going through, and they would give them instructions on how to deal with some of these issues. And the church, uh, they would read these when they gathered on Sundays, and then they would make copies of these, and they would maybe send it by courier to, or by, you know, by horseback or whatever, to the church in the town next door, and they would read it, and they would make a copy of it, and then that church would maybe send them uh, a letter written by Paul or written by Peter, and these letters began to be circulated amongst the churches. Um, and it was very slow. It was very organic. It was not similar to the Old Testament. It was not one man. It was not a council of of men. At no point did any church leaders uh, commission anyone to write a New Testament book to write Scripture. At no point did they say we really need to have. Uh, something about this kind of teaching as a part of our scriptures. So they commissioned someone to write it. That never happened. It was clear that it was God who, who formulated and brought together and organized the New Testament. The authority was not one man or one group of men. The authority was the scriptures themselves. The process was initially identification of the most edifying letters, and that gradually evolved to specific criteria that were then identified. And there are several criteria that I'm going to go through, but the, the largest and clearly the most important that I want, to, I want to sit on for a couple of minutes, the primary criteria was apostolic authority. In John 20 and verse 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And we know that Jesus, in the book of Luke, Jesus sent out the twelve to go spread the word, through the towns, they came back, they reported back to him, and then at some point later, maybe a couple months later, he sent out the 72, which 
were the 12 and 60 more, he sent them out. And it was clear that Jesus was raising up and training his apostles to take his message to the rest of the world. In Acts 10, 39 to 43, it says, he commanded us to preach to the people. And if you think about it, how many books did Jesus write? And the answer is none. Jesus didn't write any books. Now we know the power of the written word in the Old Testament, and it was clear that God himself commissioned these books to be written in the Old Testament so, so the Jews could study them and learn about them and form a nation and be ready for Jesus. And we know the power of the written word. We've talked about that. So it seems clear that God would want the apostles to write a New Testament, the, his written word of the new covenant. In 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, Paul is writing to the church in, in the city of um, Thessalonica, and he says, you accepted it. And when he says it, he's referring to the apostles' teaching. You accepted it not as human words, but as it actually is the word of God. Amazing. He's referencing the apostles' teaching as the word of God. 1 Peter 3 and verse 2, Peter says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. It's very clear that Jesus commissioned the apostles. So there also is several other criteria, which I call secondary criteria, by which these letters and these books uh, came to be recognized as Scripture. And, and I'll go through them very briefly. One is the orthodoxy that indicated content based upon the apostolic foundation. And that basically means that the church understood what the apostles teach because they were they were around teaching them. And so if, if a letter that was written by Paul or Luke, uh, if it didn't have the same content and the same message that the apostles teach, taught, then it could not be considered as scripture. The next one is truthfulness. If anything in any part of the letter was recognized as not being true, then that disqualified that letter as possibly being recognized as scripture. Faithfulness uh, to the previously accepted canonical writings, and that includes the Old Testament writings. If there was... Um, if there was a letter that had something that wasn't, that didn't agree with something in what was recognized in the Old Testament scriptures, that disqualified it. And then also it had to be uni universally recognized by the early church leaders and the early church fathers. If it wasn't universally recognized, it couldn't be accepted as scripture. Not all the New Testament books were written by apostles, but the church insisted either apostles or those very close to apostles, e.g. Mark and Luke, um, had to be ones, the books had to be written by them or by the apostles, obviously. Uh, and as I said, no books were ever commissioned or authorized to be written in Scripture, and that underscores the fact that God was the author. In 2 Peter 1, and verse 20 and 21, it says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I just want to uh, reinforce what I've already said, that in the Old Testament, God spoke directly to the prophets, and they wrote those exact words down. But in the New Testament, God gave gave the, the apostles, and he gave 
has given all of us, if we've been baptized and we've repented, we're living as Christians, we all have the Holy Spirit in us, that these men who wrote the New Testament were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And they may not have even known, they probably, in fact, didn't even know they were writing what would later become recognized as scriptures. They were just simply writing letters to the churches to try to encourage them and help them and edify them. And, and that's, that's just amazing that they probably didn't even know they were going to be scriptures. Second Peter 3, verse 15 to 16 is a really cool little uh, scripture as well. It says, Peter's writing, and he says his, Paul's, letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable, unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. So it's amazing that at this point, Peter is recognizing and... He's not announcing this. It was just being recognized that these letters were scripture. And in 2 Peter, I was written 80, 98 uh, AD, something like that. Uh, maybe 70, 80, I don't know off the top of my head. But at this point, some of the letters were recognized as scripture. It didn't happen 300 years later by a council of men who came together and said, these are the exact ones that are going to be scripture. That had happened long before that. So the Old Testament came uh, together a little bit differently than the, Old, uh, the, the New Testament, but it's clear that both of them came through God. So let's talk about, for a few minutes, because we're running up on, towards the end of our talk here, let's talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which I think are absolutely amazing. So um, in the 19th century, we had... Um, we had the, the New Testament, the Old Testament. And as you can imagine, the Old Testament books written between 1500 B.C. and 400 B.C. Uh, they were written uh, on, um, on scrolls. They would be used quite often. And as books that we use often, magazines we know, they disintegrate over a very short period of time. So these, these scrolls, they had professional um, copyists, scribes. It was their only job to meticulously copy these scrolls and these books. And they would take hours upon hours, make copies, but there was no printing press back then. So they would, they it would take them weeks to make copies. And then those copies would wear out because they would be passed around. And there was maybe, you know, in each, in each church, they may have only had one or two copies. So those copies were out. So then there was copies of those copies. And as you can imagine, there was copies of copies of copies of copies. And so in the 19th century, um, the Bible that, that they had back then, the oldest actual manuscripts were from around were, were from around 1100 A.D. and and so the scriptures from those manuscripts, of course, matched the scriptures that we use and they use in the 19th century. But there was always a nagging question of those manuscripts that dated back to 1100 A.D. were those accurate to what was written back in. 50 AD or 250 BC or 1000 BC and there was the nagging question now for those people that had faith I mean we went on faith and of course we believe that God would keep the integrity of the scriptures throughout the, the centuries so in around 1947 there was uh, a Bedouin boy in the Judean desert and he's uh, a teenager He's doing what uh, what teenagers like to do. He's throwing rocks, probably trying to hit things. It's like when I was a kid, you know, throwing stones at a at a at a stop sign or throwing you know a snowball at something, trying to hit it. 
So he's throwing a stone, he's throwing stones into a cave in the Judean desert, and all of a sudden he hears something shatter, and it's, it's not the sound that a rock makes when it hits another rock. So he goes into the cave to try to see what made that sound, and, and what he discovers was absolutely amazing. He discovered uh, hundreds of scrolls in clay jars, and uh, they were, among other, th among other things, there was biblical manuscripts that had been preserved throughout the centuries through a combination of the climate and being very uh, dry and also the clay jars. And the amazing thing, of course, when he discovered this, um, you know, the word got out. Um, many, many scholars went and started studying these things. And what they found was that every single Old Testament book but Esther was found. Now, some of the scrolls had only a few words from some of the manuscripts, and some of the scrolls actually had entire books from the Old Testament. And so they carbon dated these things, and what they found was that these were manuscripts that were written around 300 B.C. And the amazing thing is that these manuscripts indicated almost exact matches of the manuscripts that that the people had from 1100 AD. So there's 1400 years the integrity of the written word, God's written word was maintained and it was almost an exact match. And that basically proves the integrity of the manuscript stood the test of time. It's amazing, but of course this makes sense if we believe in an all-powerful God who we believe created the earth and created the Old Testament and the New Testament, gave us exactly what we need, then why wouldn't we believe that he is able to preserve the amazingly powerful written word over uh, thousands of years? And of course, we now have proof of that with the Dead Sea Scrolls. So let's bring this thing on uh, for a landing here. Conclusion. And Julius, you can put up the, the last slide. Uh, because I do have some references, and I do want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, this wasn't just my own study of the scriptures. Um, here's the conclusions. Jesus was a real man who really lived, who really taught, and claimed he was the Son of God and the only way to God. The entire Bible centers around Jesus, and when we can understand and have faith that Jesus was a real historical figure documented by extra-biblical manuscripts, but more importantly, by his own teaching and the authority of his own word, um, then we can we can begin to um, have faith in the Old Testament and the New Testament because everything centers around Jesus. Secondly, the Old Testament was formed organically. Much of it spoken by God directly to the prophets. As the books were written, they were placed in the temple and immediately recognized by the Jews as scripture. Jesus referenced the majority of the Old Testament books as Scripture. The New Testament was also formed organically a little bit differently. It was spoken through the apostles, but the books were determined to be uh, universally accepted uh, criteria, the main one being apostolic authority. And then finally, the Dead Sea Scrolls prove that the integrity of the Scriptures were maintained throughout the millennia. So I hope that... Everyone um, has got a lot out of this discussion. I hope it's been faith-building and encouraging. 
And, um, and I hope that you um, continue to study this on your own. The email that went out has a, uh, a six-page uh, PDF that goes into this in much, much greater detail with many, many more scriptures. I encourage you to read through that. Do your quiet times on that. And, uh, and let's just continue to be encouraged by God's Word. Let's be encouraged to continue to be faithful, especially what we're going through uh, with all the craziness that uh, God is in control and that even through suffering, God can do uh, many, many great things. So again, thank you all very much. And I look forward to seeing you all um, at some point in the near future.